Ramble. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging, and that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for her job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters. Especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days bada bing bada boom mina was shuffling through the children's clothing racks and she feels this little tug on her skirt and she's asking her son okay yeah what is it sweetie do you need something There's no response. So Mina pulls her eyes away from the clothes and she looks at her son. He's like six years old at this point and his eyes are bulging out of his head. He looks petrified. And she's like, what's wrong? And this little kid, he's Korean. He says, oh, we've got to go home right now. Why? What's wrong? Do you have to go potty? Like, I'll I'll be done in 10 minutes. Can you hold it? No, the Ajoshi said that we need to leave right now. Mina looks around. There's definitely nobody near them, and there's definitely not a middle-aged man. All of the employees at this children's clothing store, they're young women. So she's confused. What Ajashi are you talking about? Like, I just need to grab a few more things. And Ajashi is an old man. Old middle-aged man. Yeah. And he looks up at her again and says, that Ajashi right there told me to leave. And he's pointing into the air. Mina looks, and there is Nobody. She says, are you sure you saw an Ajashi? What did he look like? He keeps saying he was bleeding. He keeps trying to hug the nice cashier lady. Mina didn't leave because she's in this very fancy luxury shopping mall. And maybe kids just make up some things. Maybe he wanted to go to a toy store instead. Maybe he was bored. Maybe he wanted to go home and watch TV. It just didn't make any sense why there would be a bleeding man in the middle of this store. I mean, this mall is known for, you walk in, very normal to see coats going for $1,000 a coat. Table tea sets going for $8,000, $9,000. People dressed up to go shopping at this establishment. There certainly weren't any middle-aged bleeding ajashis trying to hug cashiers. It's just not that type of place. But these were the rumors that would float around Korea even to this day. 
children dragging their parents out of this mall, talking about how they saw a bloody man telling them to get out. How they saw bloody people climbing onto workers' backs, trying to almost get on their back like a piggyback ride. There were rumors that children were being warned to stay away from this mall. Because very soon, over 502 people would be dead and 30 people would go missing inside of these very walls. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. This is another Korean case. We had multiple Korean researchers assist in gathering of the facts on this one. But as always, please let us know if there's anything that we didn't cover or something that got lost in translation. I mean, it's a huge case, so I'm sure it's bound that we're going to have things that we didn't touch up on, but just let us know in the comments. So with that being said, let's get into it. June 29th in South Korea is almost peak summertime. I mean, almost every single person that walked into the Samplung Mall said the same thing that day. Which is, why is it so hot? Like, why is it so hot? A lot of people were coming to the mall to avoid the heat outside. And usually these massive indoor malls, they blast the AC during the summer. You walk in, you feel that ice cold air smack you on the way in. Not today. The mall was more humid, more hot, clammy. It was so hot, it was difficult to breathe inside of the mall. It's like the AC was broken. The workers are profusely sweating, apologizing to the customers. Sorry, the AC's broken. I'm I'm sure it's going to turn back on any second now. And despite all the heat, about a thousand people were inside that mall when the whole thing came crumbling down. Everyone had 20 seconds to get out of that mall. That's all they got. 20 seconds is the length of the happy birthday song in Korean. If you had 20 seconds to, do you think you could go from inside of the changing room, inside of a store, get out of the store, down the hall, to the emergency staircase, down the stairs, to the ground floor? Let's say you're four stories high, three stories, fine, right? And at least a few more steps further to avoid impact. Could you do that in 20 seconds? So Pyeong-ho, he was a magne at his job, which means he was the youngest in amongst all of his coworkers, which is why all the colleagues kind of like took it easy on him when he was pouting and whining the whole day. He's like, it's not fair. We work at the restaurant on the fifth floor. The AC's broken. All the other restaurants on this floor are closed. Why are we open? Why are we the only one? On top of that, I mean, do customers really want to eat right now? It's so hot. So the AC just broke that day. Yeah, all day it had been off. Okay, so yeah. it's not like ongoing. It's no. Just, it's, okay. That one day. So he's in the front keeping himself busy when the head chef runs out from the kitchen. Get out, get out, get out. Pyeong was like, okay, I'm not even going to look up. He just casually says, okay, give me a second. Like, I just need to finish this up. The chef runs to Pyeong pushes him on the back and says, you idiot, I said run. And he looks up and he sees people booking it like all the there's like five customers they're booking it to the emergency stairwell so he starts jumping over chairs jumping over tables trying to join them at that staircase he has no idea what's going on he just knows that they're all running and as he's running one by one the lights the recess lighting in the ceiling they're shattering and it's getting darker and darker and pyongo would have 20 seconds to make it out alive jiwan let's call her jia was another employee at the mall. She worked in the basement level. So she sold um, crystals at one of those like home goods shops. 
And that day, she took her break early because it was so hot. I mean, she felt like all day, if she even moved fast, if she even thought fast, she would break out into a full-blown sweat. So she tried to move slowly, reserve this energy. She had to fight every intrusive thought that she had to not just walk out of that store, quit, and never look back. That's how hot it was. She takes her break early, and as she's walking back into the store, the manager, Anni, which is like an older sister, right, starts running towards her, screaming, turn around, run, run. The last thing Gia remembers were these little broken shards of crystal flying at her, and she didn't understand what was happening. Just that all the crystals in the shop looked like they had exploded. Gia would have 20 seconds to make it out alive. 19-year-old Let's call her Sarah. Sarah had just graduated from high school, and now she's working at one of these high-end children's clothing shops, basement level of the mall. She wasn't even supposed to be working that day. Her colleague called her and was like, hey, can you switch shifts with me? So she did. She was coming back from her lunch break when she felt something really strange. There was a cold wind. It felt really nice because she had been sweating in this hot, humid, dank basement floor all day without the AC. But did you just catch on? Yeah, why is there a cold wind, right? Exactly. She works on level B1, the basement floor. There's no exterior doors that could be open to let in a breeze. It was a strong breeze, too. And the AC wasn't back on. Sarah would have 20 seconds to make it out alive. There is a man. 21. Um, his name is Che Myung-suk, but we're going to call him Michael. He actually started working at the shoe store in this Hampung department store. He was studying architecture, but he just needed to make some extra money on the side. And he was on his shift when everything went dark. He didn't even have 20 seconds to run. Nothing registered in him. It was just lights out, literally, figuratively. When he woke back up, everything was pitch black. He was laying on cold concrete. He's basically boxed in by concrete. He couldn't move. On the sides of him, there was concrete. Above him, there was concrete. Below him, concrete. He just had to lay there in a fetal position, having no idea what had just happened. There was no light, no food, no water. He tried to kind of push up against the jagged concrete, but he was worried that any sort of movement would cause the concrete to completely crush him. Even the air supply felt stale, dusty, and limited. The panic starts to kick in. He's like getting claustrophobia. And in any other situation, I think that this would have been terrifying. But he started hearing a woman's screams. And she's screaming, save me, save me. He said that he felt kind of happy that he wasn't alone in the dark. So he starts screaming back, hello. There were now two voices responding back at him. So one was Lee Sung-yeon, a 25-year-old woman that worked in the kitchenware shop, also on the first basement floor, and an ajumani. So that's like an older auntie customer. So these are a lot of like basement workers, right? Yes. Is it because there's a higher chance of survival? Oh Everyone on floors one through five, unless they were in, um, unless they were oh out of the gosh. building, they would die. So they were all trapped. Just like Michael, the Ajumani, um, the woman, they're all trapped. The Ajumani could barely talk because she was actively being squashed by the concrete, like on her chest. Ajumani she, is? The customer. 
an older old, woman. Yeah. yeah, I would say maybe like 50s, 60s. And she told them in all these gas breaths, like there's a heavy piece of concrete on my chest. I can't talk. So the two, Michael and the other kitchen shop worker, they tried to help her not panic so that she's not going to hyperventilate because there's no way for her, to, for her to even like take in a big breath of air. So in small breaths, in very kind of like she's drowning, she tells the others, my daughter turned 30 this year. And there was just this lingering silence because it's, it's a reminder of everything that was outside and they don't know what to say to that. So they fall silent. Michael feels these tears coming down the sides of his face. And he says, then let's get out alive. And the three promised each other, okay, us three, we're going to get out alive. And then everything went black again. Michael and the others, they kept falling asleep, coming to, falling asleep, passing out. I wonder if it's the air supply that was cutting them off. It was hard to even gauge how long they had been in there. Michael asked the others, hello, how long have we been in here? The 25-year-old worker responded, but her voice sounded really weak. I think a day, maybe two, I don't know. It feels like a week. Ajumani, are you okay? Silence. And then they started panicking. Ajumani, you have to wake up. You gotta wake up. Your daughter just turned 30. Michael would never hear her voice again. She was gone and she would never get to see her daughter turn 31. Not long after, the 25-year-old kitchen worker called out for Michael and said, Michael, yeah? I think I'm gonna go now. Please tell my family I love them. Michael said that after that, the fear of death had never been so strong. Like he could almost taste it. It gripped his entire being. He said it's very hard to explain. He had never felt anything like that. He was all alone. The two others that had, quote, survived, they were now dead. He felt like it was only a matter of time until he died. But it's a slow, agonizing wait. He started feeling delusional from the anxiety, the hunger, and then... All of a sudden, he just felt so thirsty. He didn't even feel scared anymore. It was all he could think about was water, thirst. It's like he was going crazy. Right at that time, someone answered his prayers. While he was feeling delirious, water started dripping onto his head. He didn't even know if he was dreaming. He genuinely thought, am I hallucinating? Like, you know, when you see the lakes at the desert and you keep walking towards it? Mm -hmm. He thought it was that. But he scooted so that the water would drip directly into his mouth instead of his forehead. And he started drinking the disgusting water that was dripping into his mouth. He felt around with his hands in the dark. And there were these few pieces of like dusty, I don't even want to call it like paper, more like cardboard boxes. And he grabbed them, wet them in the water. And he slowly laid there, ripping it shoving it in his mouth, chewing and eating it. He was so desperate to just fill his stomach with anything that acid was just killing him. Now, side note, the water that he's drinking and that he's wetting this paper with, it's not fresh water or even tap water. It has been through layers of concrete, dust, rust, and that's if there's no dead bodies on top of him. It was very risky water, but he had no choice. And that is what he would do 
for the next 11 days. That's almost two full weeks. In silence, alone in the dark, eating rusty, wet paper. It was dead silent for Michael. He had no idea that on the other side of all these layers and layers of concrete and twisted metal, there were thousands of people trying to save him. All hell had just broken loose. This was happening on a random Tuesday afternoon. There were commuters, office workers, families driving near the mall, out walking on the streets. They hear this crazy, almost deafening noise. They look to their left. I mean, some of them, it's their right. And this entire shopping mall, one of the most iconic buildings at the time, because it's like this salmon pink color. Everyone knew that Sampung Mall, right? Pancaked. This mall that was 10, 20 stories tall, now look like a one-story building. Pancaked. A pile of rubble. It wasn't even like an avalanche where, you know, which I know those things happen very quickly. But, you know, you watch those videos and you see things are slowly falling and you can't stop it, but it, it comes closer and closer. This was one second the building is standing up tall, totally fine. The next second, it's on the ground. All you see are skies. The first thing on everyone's mind was North Korea. We are under attack. This is a full-blown war. North Korea is attacking us. So a lot of people are running away from the building because they don't know, is North Korea going to attack another building? But a lot of people were running towards the building to try and help anyone they could. And it was like a group of zombies were seen walking out of the mall. Their faces, their hair, their whole body was white, like powder white. Some of them had even patches of bright red blood on them, but the rest of their bodies, powder white. Even their eyelashes were white. It's like someone threw bags of flour at them. There was so much sand, rubble, cement, particles in the air that anyone within an 80 feet radius from the mall was covered in white powder. Wow. At this point, breaking news is playing on every single TV station news network. Sampung department store has just collapsed. There are an estimated 1,000 people inside at the time of the collapse. As of right now, investigators do not know the cause of the attack. There is speculation that this could be the work of a terrorist attack by North Korea. Hundreds of ambulances, fire trucks, they rushed the scene. About 4,000 official personnel. So, I mean, you're talking firefighters, police, soldiers. They start arriving at the scene. They bring in helicopter cranes, heavy machinery, and the whole situation was so tricky. There's two main issues that the rescuers are confronted with. So the first being that the left and right edges of this building have not collapsed. It's like someone cut out just two edges of a cake and then squashed the middle. Hmm. But the sides are standing and now they're starting to kind of tip each way. So they're going to fall and hit some people. Is, is that Yeah. Okay. So if you're standing in the middle of this mm -hmm. rubble trying to dig out people, this falls. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are going to die. Oh, and they can't even, can they even knock it down? No. Because that will fall on yeah. more people. More people. So at any moment, it's at the risk of collapsing. I mean, it's like a domino waiting to topple over. It looks like a strong gust of wind could take it down. It's dangerous. And the second problem was, even though that we have all of this heavy machinery, right? We've got the helicopter, fork cranes, none of it could be used. The experienced rescuers, they point out, if we use this equipment and we're not precise, if there's someone underneath a piece of concrete the machine could easily squash them. Or let's say we're trying to pick up that concrete, 
we could literally rip someone in half with a crane. We could literally rip their head off. Have you ever played pickup sticks? You know, you get the same mm, size sticks, yes. you throw them, and then you have to take each stick out without moving the other ones. That's what this was a game of. And the stakes were really high. The rescuer said, I mean, people are going to die if we don't do this right. So the only way to save people was to use light machinery and go by hand and just pray that the edges of the building would not collapse in on them. So originally, the morale amongst rescuers was very, very high. I mean, it would be a miracle if anyone survived, but they at least had to try. But once they got to work, they said, you know, they noticed so many mannequin parts that were under the rubble. So looking from afar on the street, they could see like arms, legs, and torsos just peeking out from the rubble. And it's unsettling, but it's like, it's to be expected. It's a shopping mall. But once they lifted layers of concrete. It was a mannequin. They were people. The night... Before Michael was trapped, security guard Ian was alone doing his rounds. And he wasn't nervous. You know, there's cameras everywhere, big massive gates that are closed at night. Nobody ever tries to break into one of the top department stores in Seoul. But still, it's it's 3 a.m. and the empty building is kind of creepy. All the mannequins are practically glowing under the dim lights. And he has to walk from each floor to each floor. And like the echo of his footsteps, that's the creepiest part. Every step, it sounds like someone is walking behind him. And he's walking through this newly renovated hallway when he hears like this groan. It sounds like one of those fantasy movies where they have like monsters or dragons that are groaning or hissing. And he freezes. Okay, there's no alarm sounding. So he can't be a robber. And that's not even like a human noise. It sounded like it was coming from the top floor. So he speed runs all the way up to the fifth floor. And so earlier I said the building is 10 to 20 stories high, right? Mm -hmm. It's 10 to 20 apartment stories high. But because it's one of those fancy department stores, it's only five levels above ground. But each level, you're talking like crazy, like 30 foot ceilings. So double the regular. Yes, double, triple. So he's running up to the fifth floor and he looks up. He sees all these restaurants that are closed. And at first glance, everything seems normal. There's no one hiding. There's no shadowy figures, anything like that. And then he sees the moonlight reflecting off the glass of the restaurant. But not just even the moonlight. He sees the moon reflecting off. He's like, that is so weird. And he looks up. There is a giant table-sized hole in the ceiling. It looked like someone or something had taken a bite out of the ceiling. This is the night before the collapse. This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate. I wrap up in my coziest blanket and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. 
I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food. That's why farmer's dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder. So I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months. The farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions. Our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned ready to serve packs which is super convenient. All you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog and they'll deliver personalized vet developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. And you can adjust the recipe selection, portion sizes, and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. Now, if you ask any Korean person, if you had a time machine, what would you do? What was the first thing that you do with the time machine? An overwhelming majority of them would answer, I would go and buy up all the land in Gangnam. <laughs> Yeah. So 50 years ago, if you purchase land in the city of Gangnam, which is like the Beverly Hills, the Upper East Side of South Korea, you would be part of South Korea's ultra elite today. But how would you even know to do that? 50 years ago, Gangnam was not a fun, glamorous place. It was kind of more of a dangerous place. Gangnam is south of the Han River in Seoul. And back then, the rich people only lived above the river. They never lived below. Anything below was considered not that classy. But somehow... Somehow, this businessman by the name of Lee Chun, this influential rich businessman, he worked in the South Korean government. He had ties to the American CIA. He owned a massive construction company and he focused on doubling his business every year, which is insane to double your business every year. That's crazy. He mainly did this by buying up land in underdeveloped, not so desirable areas like Gangnam 
and turning it into what it is today. And side note, he's not that smart. He's not a real estate whisperer. He was a high up government employee and he would get word that the government wants to develop Gangnam or this area of Seoul and he would just go in and buy a ton of land. Most of the time, he would just flip it and sell it back to the government at an inflated price. But he was going in when Gangnam Real Estate was selling for less than $6 a square foot. Now, it's about $1,000 a square foot. I did some math. That means if you bought an apartment that's about 1,500 square feet, that would have been about $10,000. Today, that same land, that same piece of land, $1.5 million. So Lee, with his insider information, he bought over 2 million square feet in Gangnam back when it was dirt cheap. But he's like, you know what? Why would I sell this land back? I should develop it. I should do something. There's new fancy schools coming into Gangnam. Like some colleges are coming in. We got some private schools coming in. We got all these. So um, Gangnam is kind of known as like the new money area. The old money Koreans actually still live above the river, they say. In Gangnam, you've got all like the lawyers, doctors, like the professionals moving in. So he's like, I need to make a department store. Because what do new money residents like? They like labels. They want to show people they have money. So back in the day, you know, Korean stores, you go there, it's utilitarian. You go and you buy what you need. I'm going to make it super aesthetic. I want it to be a one-shop stop. I want them to come. It's a social event. They eat dinner. There's fancy restaurants. There's a fancy supermarket. I want everything in there. So he gets this construction company called Usung Construction. Apparently, they're actually really good. They've got a very clean reputation or relatively clean. A lot of people vouch for their durability. Like right now, if you see new apartments, it might even say like Usung constructed because people really like it. So Lee tells Usung, I want a four-story commercial building. They're like, okay. They start drawing out the plans. They start building the building. And halfway through, they've got the main foundation up. Lee walks into their office, sits down. You know what? Let's add another floor. Make it five. Better number, right? Four is a bad number. Five. Five is good. Usung is looking at him like, are you dumb? You cannot just add another floor. That's not how it works. If you want another floor, we have to start over. We have to bulldoze everything down and start over. If you add another floor without altering the current plans, the building would have way too much weight and stress on the foundation and it's, it's going to be compromised. So Lee gets up and says, Okay, well, then you're fired. He goes and he hires a new construction team, one that has a very hard time saying no to him, his own construction team. He acts like he is the construction engineer, the ar architect. If you say no to him, you're fired and potentially blacklisted from the industry. And so they made his ultimate dream come true. His team built the Sampung department store. It would be the second biggest department store in the nation at the time. And it would bring in insane amounts of money. The first year they were open, they were projected to do about $150 million in revenue. That's calculated with inflation. The second year, they doubled. $300 million a year in revenue. Sampung Department Store was built with the intention that you don't have to go anywhere else, okay? Everything's in these two buildings. So there's building A and building B, and they're connected on each floor by these long hallways. But mm -hmm. the hallways are not the width of building A and B. Mm -hmm. So it looks like, you know, kind of uh, from an aerial view, it looks like two squares with a short line in between, like a short stick connecting them. Now, you don't ever have to leave the building to get to the other one, but it's interesting. Building A was the mall. 
The fifth floor would have all these fancy sit-down restaurants. You could meet up with your friends before you go shopping. And then the fourth floor, luxury household goods, fancy wine glasses. Third floor, men's clothing. Second floor, women's clothing. First floor, foreign imported goods and cosmetics. Now there are four basement levels. B2 through B4, they're more for like storage, machine rooms, parking spaces. And B1 is kind of open to the public. It's a mall. So a lot of Korean malls, they have um, supermarkets on the basement mm-hmm. level. So you literally run all your errands. This is kind of genius. They also have cheaper food courts in the basement. So more like food stands. So B1 is open to the public and there's always a lot of customers and workers shuffling in and out of that floor. Now, building B is more commercial real estate. So you've got office buildings, you have a gym, but that's about it. Not a lot of foot traffic, not a lot of aesthetics. It looks like just your office plaza. Okay, so what's so wrong about it? Here's what's wrong about it. The escalators. Most buildings, and I never noticed this until I was researching this, but there's usually two escalators per floor. Mm-hmm. And like two going up, two going down, especially big malls. And I always thought, okay, so it's more people can go up and down the escalators, manage the traffic, right? And I'm sure that plays a role. But a big reasoning behind it is apparently having two escalators going up and down on either side helps distribute the weight better. Uh, Okay. Okay. Well, it's a thing, okay? Apparently having two escalators on a floor helps distribute the weight, making it safer. And Lee said, actually, no, that's so expensive. I just need one. So he kept putting just one escalator on each floor. In massive buildings, especially commercial buildings, there are these giant rods in the middle of the open space. They're load-bearing columns. They're there to hold weight. So if you walk in to your local mall, you're going to see these giant round columns. It's drywalled. It looks pretty. But you're like, oh, why is this here? It's blocking my view. It's to hold weight. Like there's no way that you can have this massive room and just have four walls. Well, the original plan was to have 31-inch thick columns. It's about two and a half feet thick. And inside, you can't see it because it's covered in drywall, but there's supposed to be 16 steel rods supporting the weight. Mm -hmm. Lee said, let's make the columns less than two feet thick because I don't like big columns. I want to be able to see the merchandise. And why do we need 16 steel rods? Let's do eight. This is a huge deal. The steel rods are what's holding up the weight above it. People take lack of steel rods so seriously. Recently in Korea, a apartment building company, they put in less steel rods than they were supposed to. They were exposed for it. And now that building is called Boneless Chicken Apartment Building. Yeah. There's still a building. Yeah. Wow. So I think it's up to code, but it's not as good or as much as other builders do. So they're called Boneless Chicken Apartment Building. (sighs) Because why are you not, like, steel rods, seriously? Lee said that he hated the idea of thick columns, so let's cut it down. But that's not the only thing that he skimped out on costs. So this is going to get really complicated, but just, like, bear with me. It's so important. When you have a flat ceiling and a column right up against it, it's called flat slab construction. Or at least in Korean, that's what it's called. It looks modern. It's faster to build. It's cheaper. But it's, it's definitely not safer. It can cause something called a punching phenomenon. Imagine you've got a piece of paper and you're holding it down on a pencil. The pencil could easily punch through into the piece of paper. Now, if you were to stick another circular piece of paper on the point of the pencil and then stick another paper on top, it's much harder for you to stick through, even though it's just paper. It's very hard to punch through two layers. That's the drop panel. That's what it's called. 
So think of it as instead of walking through the mud with sneakers, you're walking through with heels. The difference is massive. Yeah. Your heels are going to poke into the soil. Yeah. But Lee, rich businessman, owner of a crazy lucrative construction company says, eh, should be okay. He knew that this was a bad idea. He knew this was dangerous, but it saved him money. So he was all aboard. He said, you know what? It's fine. Columns are strong. But they're not, especially when you take out half the steel rods, like half the skeleton of the column is now gone. But the worst, the biggest hazard of this whole building was the fifth floor. It should not have existed. The building was not designed to hold the weight of another floor. It sounds like, ah, it's just another floor. But that is an additional 25% of the overall weight added, if not more. That is huge. At first, he told his team, it's going to be for a roller skating rink, which honestly would have been a lot safer. Less traffic, not as much furniture, but instead... He said, you know what makes more money? Restaurants. Restaurants are insanely heavy. Commercial ovens, commercial walk-in freezers, industrial-sized refrigerators, lots of water. Lots of water is heavy. Since there's going to be multiple kitchens on that floor, I mean, you're talking AC up there is going to be intense. Restaurants are also more densely packed than a roller skating rink. The entire weight distribution and calculations were Going off the walls. You know those big Amazon delivery trucks? Uh Well, the weight of the fifth floor was about 100 of those delivery trucks. Imagine parking 100 of those on the roof where it should not be. That's just the fifth floor. That's not... Oh, and he wanted to do heated floors for the fifth floor, which added 2,415 tons of weight. Just for heated floors. And on top of that, there was even more. So the roof of the fifth floor on building A were these giant AC cooling towers. They weighed 87 tons each. There's three of them. So the total of that to visualize, imagine sticking two houses on top of the roof of a mall that is already unstable. This is, I mean, this is crazy. Just on top of the roof. Now, here's where things go really wrong on the roof. So firstly, the AC towers on this specific roof is a death wish. The vibrations that the AC creates, it only further destabilizes the building's foundation. That's what causes cracks, vibration, movement. Mm -hmm. And so since the get-go, like opening day of this mall, they could see the red flags. The vibrations and the weight of the heavy AC cooling towers, they were causing water leaks onto the fifth floor. Because the water would leak out of the AC, there would be a crack and it would flow through. But the biggest, biggest atrocity of what they did on that roof, the AC towers were facing towards a nearby apartment building. All the residents of that apartment building were like, the AC towers are so loud. We're filing complaints. You've got to do something about it. So they had to move the AC towers to the other side of the roof. Now, to do something like that, what do you do? You have to call in industrial cranes. You've got to have a ton of professionals on site to make sure that it's done safely and securely. It's a pricey relocation. Lee very wealthy mogul, said, too expensive, get a couple of dollies. Wow, so they just scooped it over. They didn't even scoop it because there's no dollies that can carry that much weight. They basically dragged it. And if you see pictures of that roof from like opening year, there's cracks all over. Wow. And now they move the ACs to the other side. And what do they do? They vibrate and cause even more cracking now to even the other side of the building. Now, here's where it gets 
kind of unexpected. This one I wasn't expecting at all. One of the first stores that opened up inside this mall actually contributed to the collapse. A bookstore. Did you know Korean books are even heavier than foreign books because they use a higher portion of stone powder in the paper? A year and a half after opening, the bookstore would be relocated from the second floor of the mall down to the basement because that bookstore was causing so much damage to the building from the sheer weight of the books and the shitty construction. If this had been a well-built building, there wouldn't have been any damage. So they realized yeah. something is happening? Yeah. There were cracks like, all over the second floor. What? There was bending in the floor. There was drooping in the floor. The floor was tilted where the bookstore was. Wow. And nobody yeah. did anything. No. The entire building started to lean a little bit. And all it would take would be 20 seconds for the entire building to crumble. And literally not a single part of this rescue was easy. End of June in South Korea is typically a very rainy season. The rain was pouring down on the rescue efforts. I mean, in theory, it might have been good since when a building collapses, there's always small fires trapped inside the rubble. You've got open electrical wires, you've got appliances, and poisonous gas, they start to spread, which, you know, pretty quickly could kill any survivor that's trapped inside that manages to find an air pocket. So the rain, in theory, would have been helpful, but it was just a massive inconvenience. Like the rain was not enough to put out the fires, but it was enough to slow down the rescuers. Firemen had to come in and try to calm any potential flames. And the first 16 hours of rescue efforts, five people were rescued. So there was some progress. And unfortunately, one of the survivors would die on the way to the hospital. Then 24 people who were trapped in the same air pocket were rescued. They were pulled out by rope. Nothing was going smoothly. I mean, they pulled them out, but there were still hundreds and hundreds of people that were unaccounted for. And the rescuers were nonstop sprinting from place to place. They're crawling inside of holes that are already unstable. They're shimmying themselves through the collapsed basement level, squeezing past these broken shards of glass beams, like shining their flashlight into whatever nook and cranny they could find, screaming to see if anyone survived. They would dig holes the size of a kitchen sink and just start crawling in there. They like put their lives in danger for every second that they were there because they just wanted to save people. A lot of the people in the mall, because it was a Tuesday afternoon, were young moms and children. The family members of the missing and the victims, they all gathered. They tried to help. Random civilians that had no family members in there, they were putting their lives on the line to help save people. Retired doctors grabbed their white coats, and went to local hospitals because there were way too many people coming in. A ton of ajumas, a middle-aged woman, they were too old, too frail to dig, but they created these organized groups and they would cook for the thousands of rescuers every single day. But ultimately, the morale for the rescue teams was dying, which sounds bad because I mean, how can your morale die when there's a chance that others need saving, right? But they're working themselves to the edge physically and mentally every single day. And all they're getting after the first initial groups of survivors is bad news. They're just getting bad news. Another body, another body, another body. 10 days had passed and it's the rule of three. Do you know the rule of three? No. Three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, three weeks without food. And you'll die. 
It had been 10 days. No food, no water, limited oxygen, and potentially injuries on top of all of that. The rescuers thought, okay, maybe it's time to go from rescue to recovery. The faster, the better. July is peak monsoon season. It's only going to get worse. We got to go. People said you could smell rotting corpses even if you were blocks away from the site. They started bringing in the heavy machinery. The chief of police asked all the family members who were still present at that site, come on, we, we got to do one last go before we bring in the machines. Call your loved ones. We can't hear anyone. Maybe we can hear their phone. And so all of them are standing around with their phone calling their missing loved ones. And they're just trying to listen, but they can't hear a single thing. The U.S. actually would donate these um, sound detectors to help rescuers find the phones underneath. The Korean government was already equipped with heat sensors, which is typically used to locate bodies. But the heat sensors, they work with infrared light. And when it rains, the raindrops scatter the infrared. And it becomes wildly inaccurate. 11 days had passed. And now rescuers are like, okay, no one survived. So let's bring in the machinery. Michael thought that he was going to die in there. But on the 11th day of rescue, a rescuer stopped, he blinked, he scrambled, grabbed his flashlight from his back pocket and flashed it into the hole. Hello? Is anyone there? And he put his ear up against the hole and this tiny little voice says, I'm here. The other rescuers, they don't even believe him. So he's like, come, come, come. And they all make him say, I'm here again. And everyone starts swarming. I mean, 11 days in. They had to penetrate an extra four feet of thick reinforced concrete to get him out. He was out at 8.30 a.m., 230 hours after the collapse. He was carried out on a stretcher and he waved for the cameras. Volunteer rescue workers, they're all cheering. They're all clapping. I mean, this was the victory that they needed. They're like, take the machines off. We're going back to hand. If Michael survived, there could be others. Meanwhile... Gia did not share this excitement. She thought she was going to die. For the past few days, the concrete on top of her face was coming closer and closer and closer. It was pure torture. The air was getting stuffier and she felt panic. The walls are literally closing in on her. But in the slowest way possible, she wanted to scream like, oh my God, just squish me already. Wait, she's the 25-year-old? No. Oh. A different worker, yeah. Oh, Okay. Now, the anxiety of it about to come down was worse than just dying, she said. I mean, she was buried in a pile of concrete laying on her back. So her legs were trapped under a concrete pole. And she was thankfully in an air pocket, but she can't move. So at first, Gia is screaming her head off, hoping that people can hear her. She's like, hello, I'm here, I'm here. But nobody came. So she just said she kept falling asleep. That's all she could do. I don't know if her brain forced her to sleep. She just said... I kept falling asleep. I kept dreaming that I was home. I just wanted to go home. And I kept thinking, oh my God, my dad is sick. My mom is worrying about me. And now I'm going to be even a bigger burden. 58 hours passed. So like two and a half days in. Remember the rule of three? Three minutes, three days without water, three weeks without food. Two and a half days in, she's so thirsty. At this point, she can't even think about anything but her thirst. And water starts flowing. And she takes a sip and she immediately coughs it out. She had rust water coming in. She waited till more water came in and instead of letting it flow directly into her mouth because it tasted so disgusting and rusty, she grabbed a piece of her clothing, soaked it in the water, and then just kind of wet her lips with it. 
She had no idea how many days had passed. All she knew was she was starting to hallucinate. The part where her legs felt were trapped, she felt like her legs were walking. She felt like her legs were floating at one point when it clearly wasn't. She was like losing her mind. She was losing sensation in her legs. She just kept going back to sleep. And then the next thing she knew, there's heavy machine sounds and the concrete's just getting closer and closer and closer. Would they push the concrete until it completely suffocated her? Would they push the concrete till it squished her? Like, what's going to happen? Would the excavator just come down and rip her up? Her bottom legs are stuck, so she'd be ripped in half. Gia felt terror. Sheer terror. She only had like 10 inches left. When all of a sudden, she hears a voice. Stop! Stop! Do you hear something? At around 2 p.m., on the 13th day, wow! a rescuer saw her foot and they yelled, if you're alive, move your feet. Gia tried to wiggle her toes, but she didn't even know if it was wiggling because she lost sensation a long time ago. And she screamed, save me. The rescuer clawed through the cement by hand and Gia just remembered thinking, ah, I'm found. She said it wasn't, ah, I lived. She didn't say it was, I survived. She just thought, I'm found. Good. I don't care if I die right now. Because at least they found my body, so my mom will know. Her mom was later interviewed and asked, like, what what is the first thing you want to say to your daughter? And she said, do I even need to say anything? And they were trying to ask, like, did you think your daughter was dead? Because it had been 13 days. And they said, did you think she had? And her mom stops the journalist and says, no. I didn't think that, I'll never think that because the day she dies is the day I die. After 285 hours, Gia was rescued. And at that point, the ceiling was so low, it was touching her nose. She was not even inches, but centimeters away from death. And everyone was like, okay, that's crazy, right? But there's no way there's gonna be more survivors. There's only so many miracles that the universe can give us. On the 15th day, another woman is rescued. Let's call her Sammy. She was trapped in a small pocket of air in the children's clothing section. She heard the voice of her colleague screaming, help me. And she just kept screaming, panicking, help me. There's this concrete pinning my waist down. She was getting crushed and there was no way Sammy could even get to her. And she tried telling her, it's okay, it's okay. But after a day or two, there was no more noise. Sammy said, you know, all she did was try and fall asleep. She had no idea how long she was in there. Sammy would be the last survivor found in the rubble. There would be no more miracles after that. Before we get to the depressing recovery, um, South Korea did try to bring up the morale of the country and the three survivors. So Michael, Gia, and Sammy almost became these beacons of hope for people. Michael was seen as this national hero for not only somehow miraculously surviving in the rubble for 11 days, but also his iconic wave on the stretcher. Companies started offering him gigs to model for them. Schools were offering the three full-ride scholarships. There had been this stereotype that the younger generation were weak and not as tough as their parents in South Korea, but this was completely obliterated, this idea. And just like Michael, Gia, the one who survived 13 days, she made headlines because when she was pulled out of there, reporters asked her while she was on the stretcher, how do you feel? Any plans now that you've been saved? And she said, I want to go on a date with the oppa that rescued me. And people thought it was such an unhinged, hilarious, fun answer to such a serious, serious, depressing situation. 
The last three survivors were asked, what food do you want to eat the most? Michael said, Coca-Cola. I want to drink an ice cold Coke. Gia said, iced coffee. Sammy said, I just want some ice cream. Every soda, iced coffee, ice cream brand went nuts trying to sign these three for brand endorsements. Gia also kept making jokes. Like nobody knew if they could keep laughing or not. When she was rescued, she complained, why'd you guys come so fast? I could have stayed there a few days longer. Let me go back in there. Michael had to have his head shaved to run some tests and he was so embarrassed. Anytime reporters ran into his hospital room, he would put on his little beanie, his little hat. And I think that these are the stories that people wanted to focus on because the other side was just so dark. Side note, um, almost all the rescues, especially the ones that weren't immediate, they were all subground level. So they were all in the basement. The other floors, I mean, this is a picture of what it looked like. There was no way that people were going to survive that collapse unless maybe you were on the roof, which probably not even then. Pango, the magnet working on the restaurant floor of the fifth floor, he was rescued pretty early on. He, he had made it kind of basically out. I think he was hit by just some debris. And he said, every single person I spoke to that day, the head chef, my colleagues, customers, I would later see all their names written on the disease list. Another survivor said, I just don't understand the point of life anymore. Like the people that died, there were nice people. There were really rich people. There were workers like me. There were people who went to church. There were people who studied really hard. Yet everyone died without even a chance to fight for their lives. So what is the point of anything at all? Families of victims said the nightmare was just never ending. Um, I do want to say that the rescue efforts were admirable. The rescuers, they did everything. But the system itself was flawed. Korea didn't have a strong system to respond to these types of crises, which like, I don't know if they still do with after Itaewon and so on. But at the time, it was so disorganized. Family had no idea if loved ones were alive, survived, diseased at a hospital, which hospital. Nobody had a clue. The site was left open for people to just come and volunteer. And so a lot of people did come and volunteer. But there were also a lot of hyenas. What do you think the hyenas did? They were dubbed hyenas by the media. About 400 hyenas were arrested during rescue efforts. Families are crying. Rescuers are risking oh, their lives. God. They're stealing stuff. They're pretending to help and stealing designer goods. Wow. When one was arrested, they just callously responded, well, they were all going to go to the dump anyway. Another man was caught volunteering wearing 10 pairs of designer pants. 10 pairs. When asked, why the hell were you stealing 10 pairs of designer pants? He said, what are you talking about? I was saving lives and I got cold in the middle of June. So I just put on whatever was near me. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic for 
from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin if you didn't know. Everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out. And it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Meanwhile, Mr. Jung was at work when the building fell. He's an attorney, and he didn't hear about it until way later. He was at a hushik with his coworkers, and they were drinking, they're eating, and he just had this pit in his stomach when people were like, oh, you didn't hear about the mall? So his wife and his three adult daughters, they loved going to that mall. So he calls his wife, she picks up, and he's like, oh my God, thank God. Okay, you're home, right? Are the girls home? Did you hear about what happened at the department store? She's like, what? No, the girls are there shopping. Mr. Jung's coworker said that he didn't even say anything. One minute he was on the phone, the next minute he was out the door. He ran on foot to the department store and all he saw was rubble. He started climbing on the rubble in his suit, just clawing, looking for his girls. He went to every single hospital in the city. He talked to nurses, doctors, looked at hospital morgues. The day after the collapse, he would be told that all three of his children were dead. And he said, after what my wife and I went through that day, I just hoped that the sky would fall and the earth would give out and we would just all die. And of course, he feels for every single daughter, but he really felt for his eldest because she had fought and beaten all odds. His eldest daughter went blind when she was 12 years old. She worked harder than anyone he knew. Harder than all of his adult coworker, colleagues, attorneys combined, she ended up getting her master's in special education at UC Berkeley in the United States. She came back to teach special education at Solde, which is the best school in the entire country. And her dad said she couldn't see in front of her, but she just always had a vision. 
and she fought all these odds to be here, and now she's gone. There was another family, the Lee family, and Mom Lee, Mrs. Lee, she was telling her daughter for months, like, give up the dreams of the department store. And her daughter told her, no, if I'm going to be a fashion designer, I can't just rent a small shop anywhere. I have to make a big statement. I'm going to get foot traffic. This is, I know it's a lot of money, but I've saved up my entire life savings. I'm going to rent this tiny little shop. It's my dream. And she signed the lease two months before the collapse. And Mrs. Lee said all that nagging she did, completely forgot about it. Because the minute that she saw her daughter in that shop, just how much passion she had for what she was doing, how could she not support her? She was at her shop when the building went down. And this part is so dark, but it feels really raw. A lot of families reported feeling shame and guilt afterwards because they were all there. And when survivors were being found, they would see survivors reunite with their families. And they said they would feel intense jealousy because it's only human. And then immediately they would feel so ashamed for feeling so jealous and it made them feel so gross. But they had this like, ugh, that should be me. So after the last remaining survivors were rescued, the government decided they needed to start clearing out the debris. They said it was dangerous to just have it out in the open. So they just started moving the rubble to dump sites. And a lot of victims have not been found yet. So families were at dump sites by themselves, no rescue workers, digging through the rubble. At that point, some of them only found bones. And if there was any flesh, they were unrecognizable. This mall had been built six years ago. It wasn't even around for, I mean, you, you go and you look at houses in LA, there's houses from like 1920s still up for sale. So for it to collapse, injuring over 900 people, killing 502 people and resulting in 40 people that are still considered missing to this day, it doesn't make sense. The public is like, we want answers. It was revealed that the building was not attacked by North Korea or a group of terrorists. There was no earthquake, no natural disaster. The building went down on its own. So obviously there's some sort of human error. So they found the owner, the Lee family, and journalists start hounding him with questions. And look, the way that this man answers questions does not help him in the eyes of the public. They said, did you do a safety inspection on the building? Mr. Lee said, look here, we've got many people coming in and out of this building. Do you really like think about it? Do you really think if we knew that the building was going to go down, we would keep it open? Of course, we did safety checks. It was received by the president of the building. I am the owner. I only attend meetings once a week. So you'd have to ask management to clear up those answers. In other words, we have no motive to keep them all open if we knew it was going to collapse. But as a company, it's not just about injury to customers. It's about company property. He's comparing 502 people dying to losing a mall. Like, I think it's clear what he's trying to say. Like, of course, everything was great and we knew nothing about this because think about it. From our standpoint, would it be logical to ignore such a big safety concern if it would ruin our company? But the delivery was disgusting and nobody believed him. He would also try to argue that if the building was so dangerous, why was he in building B when it collapsed? But this he survived. Building B did not collapse because... Building B oh. had sturdier columns because it wasn't a mall. So they didn't need to display merchandise. They didn't have all this heavy machinery. There was like no one in there also. They didn't even have the massive AC units on the roof. 
And this whole argument backfired when it was revealed the reason that Mr. Lee was even in Building B to begin with was because there was an emergency meeting about whether or not the mall should be evacuated. That's what they were doing, debating whether or not to close the mall when the mall collapsed. The meeting lasted for hours and executives were arguing. So Lee and his son, who is the president of the mall, they were arguing that it's going to be bad for business. The board of executives were arguing it doesn't matter because if the building collapses or even if a ceiling falls through and a customer gets injured, that's going to be bad for business. A few executives left mid-meeting because they got calls of complaints by store owners that like ceilings were crumbling. Literally during the meeting, they left. They went to investigate. They went onto the rooftop. One of the executives saw one of the columns punching through the roof. He turned to his colleague and said, get everyone out now. F*** Lee, I don't care. Get him out. They were on the way downstairs when the building went down. The other executives and the Lee family were still arguing when all hell broke loose. People are sprinting towards exits. People were being pushed into clothing racks because now you could hear the groaning. Like once that groaning hit, you had 20 seconds to get out. Some people were in their underwear just making a run for it. They had been caught in the middle of changing. Now they're booking it. If Lee hadn't cut even more costs and had there been more escalators, more stairwells, more emergency exits more people could have been saved because now there was almost a crowd crush situation on top of the collapse. A domino effect took over. The fifth floor ceiling fell through and now it was on the fourth floor holding the weight, but that was about to crumble and then soon the third floor and it would just all pancake in 20 seconds. Nobody had a warning. It looks like one of those um, aluminum soda cans that you step on. The executives in the Lee family heard. They ran out, ran to the hallway and it's just a cliff and they see the building on the ground. But still, Chairman Lee acts like he knew nothing, okay? Whenever he was interviewed by journalists, he would make it about himself. One journalist asked if he had anything he wanted to say to the victims' families, and he just said, do you think I wanted this to happen? I have nothing to say. What's crazy about all of this, and this whole family, is that Lee's daughter-in-law, so the president of the mall, his son's wife, Uh was in the building when it was collapsed. She was rescued early on. She refused to give her name to rescuers and people thought that was weird. The rescuers were like, what? Like, you don't want your family to know that you're okay? Everyone that could talk was giving their name so that your families can find you. But the very next day, they saw that same woman they rescued on the news, standing next to her husband and her father-in-law, showing her full support. Wow. So a full investigation on the cause of the collapse was ordered by the government, and it revealed a lot. I mean, obviously, it revealed all of the things that I've mentioned before. But on top of that, Chairman Lee was known to constantly change the interior of the mall, like he was just changing clothes. He would rip out perfectly acceptable lighter wood floors and put in super heavy marble flooring. He did not care about durability. He wanted it to look expensive because more people would come and they would shop and he would make more money. That's all he wanted, more money. He would knock down interior walls to like make more space for merchandise. And with all the new renovations, there were more customers. And it's not like the building crumbled out of nowhere. There were literal bright red warning signs that the Lee family and the executives, they were made aware of. Two months before the collapse, a thin line emerged on the ceiling of the fifth floor. It was more of an eyesore than anything, but every 
now and then, tinkle, tinkle, there'd be dust landing on people's faces coming from that crack. Like, that's kind of crazy. If you were dining at the restaurants, your chopsticks would slowly roll to the side and off the table because the floor was tilting, but all the customers thought, oh man, what's wrong with this table? No one thought it was the floor. No one thought it was the building that was leaning. Workers on the restaurant level, they would put in a container of raw veggies on the fridge shelf. It's like an industrial walk-in fridge. They would walk back in and it's like slid all the way to the wall. They'd put it next to the door. It slid all the way down to the wall, like five feet down to the wall. Why would it be sliding? That didn't make any sense. The floor of the fifth floor was tilted at a 15 degree angle. The tilting got so bad, the fifth floor restaurants had to be closed. They requested civil engineers to be called in for an inspection. And the main person that called was Lee's son. So he's there with the inspectors. And they're like, yeah, uh, this building is in imminent danger of collapse. The only option that you have in situations like this is to evacuate, close the entire building down, and we can game plan on what the next steps are. So they already know this before. Way before. Like two months before. And he's like, okay, okay, let me think about it. He didn't think about it. Instead, he hired workers to just hide the cracks by adding more grout and plaster. He was like, as long as the customers don't see, because this month was crucial for them. June and July were the summer sale months. This is another illegal thing that they're doing. In South Korea, you can only have a sale for two weeks. I don't know why. I guess it's so that stores can't like try to manipulate you into like buying things right two weeks the sale is scheduled for july when everybody else has the sale but the lees were like we can be smart we're gonna get our vip clients early access so we're gonna sell them the products since they're our vips we know them and we're only gonna run their card at the sale prices in july but they can come during june Mm. and they had a lot of vips so june was a very busy high traffic month for them crazy busy 10 days before the collapse a customer was sitting at their table on the fifth floor to eat and the whole thing started shaking she said it was so strange she thought it was an earthquake or something but when she told her friends that were not the mall they were like what are you talking about there was no earthquake there was nothing on the news five days before the collapse another customer was on the fifth floor eating when it felt like someone doused a bucket of water on their head and she's like what the hell looks up there is Like a droopy hole. It's not even just a hole, but like a part of the ceiling that's drooping down at the end, there's a hole. The employees were made aware of it. They tell upper management and they're like, it's just Sampung's shitty construction. They did not think that water leaks were even in the same possibility as a building collapsing. The night before the collapse, the security guard noticed the sinkhole in the roof and he called Lee's son and was like, sir, there's a literal sinkhole on the roof. And apparently the son went himself to check it out. And while he's standing there, staring at this giant hole, one of the managers of the restaurant comes out and is like, hey, I've been trying to call you for ages now. Look at this shit. Look at, can I show you something? They walk over to one of the columns on the fifth floor near his restaurant. There's an eight inch long crack that's knuckle deep. But that's not even all. The manager is like, I've been waiting for this, okay? I'm paying all this money. And look at that ceiling. Look at that ceiling above the kitchen. It's droopy. And look, look, he puts his phone on the counter, like the cash register of the restaurant. It slides off. He's like, I know it's not my counter. So what's going on? Lee's son checks his watch. He's like, shoot, the stores are about to open for the day. Okay, just why don't we close down all the restaurants on this floor? Um, I guess if you want to stay open, you can stay open, but it's fine. Close down. We're going to figure it out. We'll send up maintenance or something. 
maintenance workers were sent up and they're like, guys, this shit is going to go down. Like under no circumstances can we put plaster on anything anymore. Like it's going to go down. Lee's son left the building for about 30 minutes before he was called back in. This time to the fourth floor. A shop owner said, I just heard these like really crazy like noises. And then the whole floor shook for like three minutes. They're like, isn't that right, Susie? Like three minutes. And Susie's like, yeah, three full minutes. Lee's son is like, okay, let me investigate, right? Before he could even figure it out, water starts pouring down the walls of the fifth floor. That's why they turned off the AC units. He said, you know what? Don't close them all. Turn off the AC units and drain the water inside of them because that's what's leaking. And then four hours before the collapse, evacuation orders were given. Lee's son said, let's focus on what matters. Don't tell the customers, but let's take out all the priceless goods. Paintings, artwork, jewelry, ancient pottery, super expensive bags. Let's take it out just in case. We don't know. It could flood. It could do something. Customers, employees, they were not evacuated. They had no idea they were in a compromised building. This is unbelievable. It's like the guy's doing everything in his power to kill people. Why did they not evacuate? Because the mall was bringing in about $400,000 a day. And they said, we can't lose out on that. Many of the victims died on impact. Others suffocated to death. Others bled out. Some starved to death. And a lot of them drowned to death. When firefighters were trying to put out the fires inside the rubble, the water came in and filled their air pockets. Some of the other survivors could hear them drowning. And the firefighters that worked that scene, I don't think it's their fault. I think they did their best considering the information and tools they were given. But they still have PTSD. They have nightmares about it. They said they will carry around the guilt for the rest of their lives. In the end, the court sentenced Lee Jun, the chairman, to seven and a half years in prison, and his son got seven. You look so shocked, right? But this was actually a big deal. This is what's even crazier about this case, okay? Is the fact that, to me, I'm like, seven years, that's nothing, right? In Korea, this was landmark. This was crazy that they got seven years. I mean, people, don't get me wrong, people were still upset it wasn't enough. But a lot, a lot of people being very cynical, skeptical, and just realistic, they weren't expecting the Lee family to get any jail time. Not saying that they didn't deserve it, but that was the track record for the government. The reason why they got a lengthy jail time, lengthy quote, is really dark. It's a high-end department store. A lot of the victims were wives of influential businessmen. To just name a few, and not saying that these people's lives hold more value, but to give context on whose families were fighting for these offenders to get jail time, wife of Samsung Electronics president, wife of Teu Motors president. wife of the Samsung? Division, electronics division. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, advisor to Samsung Motors and former head of Korea's Customs Service, um, advisor to Samsung Engineering and Construction, executive for Hyundai Engineering and Construction, wives of high-powered attorneys, judges, and doctors, a judge's mother. I mean, these were just a few to name. Many of these were the upper echelon of society. These were the elites. And they still only got seven years. Yes, and... The worst part is netizens speculate had this been a middle class mall or a lower class mall, they but, probably would have gotten no jail time. But why though? What, 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 
how is that? Yeah. How, like. I guess it was um, a blame shifting game. So Lee's family would actually shift the blame on government workers that they bribed. So they would say, hey, we didn't pass our safety inspection, but just say we did. And about 30 government workers were fired and arrested as well. So because there were so many people to blame, it became this game of like, who's really at fault? Was it the gatekeeper, the government workers that didn't make sure that the safety inspections were up to date? Was it the... Yeah, I don't... Send all of them to jail. 500 people died. I agree. Lee was 72 when he got out. He died a year later. So we're not too sad about that. Uh, meanwhile, Lee's son, Jun, is one of the very few families in South Korea, uh, many we've talked about, that are basically socially exiled. They're legally allowed to be in Korea, but he is said to have been spotted living in Russia. We don't know for sure, but like the minute he steps foot in South Korea, I mean, nothing's going to so happen. So he's still around right now. Yeah. But he's free. Yes, but and I think that he has no money. Really? I don't know if he had a lot of hidden money, but the family's fortune was completely liquidated and given to the survivors and victims' families. It's estimated that each family received around um, 250000 because there's a lot of people, which honestly is nothing compared to the life of a loved one. But trust me, this is not a story where victims' families get closure. 500 plus people died. Like That's a tragedy that is going to be felt nationwide. I mean, think about the spider web of people that are either directly or indirectly impacted by this level of loss. Well, the president of South Korea was asked to say, say something to the victims. And he said, the collapse of the Sampung department store today was 21 days ago. I wish for peace for those who lost their precious lives. I pray for the speedy recovery and for those who were injured. And I express my condolences to the families who suffered an unexpected accident. Thank you. He's at his podium. Okay. He stands still for maybe two seconds and he thinks that the camera is off now. And he turns to his aide and says, that should be enough, right? It wasn't even in the tone of like, oh, do you think I should say more? Like, was ooh, was that, um, did I convey my emotions correctly? It was like a, like, I did it. Happy. Let's go. He doesn't care. Yeah. A lot of the victims' families were upset at the government and even the rescue op- operations, not the rescue workers, but the operation. They felt like the government wanted to throw some money at the victims' families, start cleaning up the rubble and make use of the land again. The victims' families requested a memorial. Um, Not to give a comparison, but later on, this comparison does come up a lot in Korean media sources. But like 9-11 in the US, I mean, that is crazy real estate if you think about it. That is prime real estate. But out of respect for the tragedy, there is a memorial there. You go there to, you, you remember these families, you remember these victims, everyone that lost their lives. But the government said, this is such a good area of Gangnam. It's like center. Like every time someone drives through here, they're going to have to be reminded of that. And like, what about the real estate prices of all the people who spend so much money on condos nearby? It's going to go down if we have a memorial here. So they said, we'll give you a memorial. So the family said, okay, then can you give it to us at this park? That's a very famous park that people love to go to. And it's a beautiful park. We can go there and spend time with our loved ones. But that park is so pretty. People will be so depressed if they go there and they see 500 something names. What about in the woods? 
They literally gave them a memorial in the middle of nowhere, like just in the mountains. And they built a luxury apartment building where that, yeah. The Sampon department store? Yeah. One of the victims' families was interviewed and the mom said, it's money, money, money. Building costs this money. Cleanup costs that money. Compensation costs money. Let's give money to the victims. Everything is about money and nothing is about my child. Remember Mr. Zhang? Speaking of money, he lost three daughters in the collapse and his eldest daughter was the blind professor at Solde. He was compensated over $600,000 for the loss of all of his children, which is nothing. And he gave it all to the Seoul National School for the Blind. Over the course of his life, he would donate more than $1.3 million to churches, schools, and charities that his daughter liked. And he would say, money to me is nothing that I can have. My daughters all had dreams to make the world a better place, and I just have to fulfill those dreams before I go. And Gia, the one that survived 13 days, she said, I just hope people can learn from this, that no one should ever have a Eh, it won't happen to me. It doesn't concern me attitude. Because tragedy doesn't really pick people to happen to. It can happen to anyone. It can happen to your child that waved goodbye to you before school or the husband that promised to be home for dinner. I never thought something like this would happen to me. But it did. And that is the story of this Hampung department store collapse. Honestly, what... What are your thoughts? Please leave it in the comments. And yeah, it's crazy. But please stay safe. And I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.